This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. As we talk about uh, positive psychology and uh, that happiness movement that Daniel was talking about, it really is... Uh, to me, I I love it as a as a process, as an approach to life. It makes sense how we get there. We do need to pay attention and make sure that uh, we're not just telling people that they they just got to hunker down and suck it up and and be happy. Um, because again, there are certain cultures and certain parts of our country, certain parts of our um, of our world that they still don't have the same opportunities, right, as others. And so um, to be positive when your sister was just abducted into a sex trade, uh, you know, underground, you know, problem, it's not enough to just say, just be happy. But that's not usually what the happiness kind of movement is about. It's more about the fact that you can wait forever to be successful and it won't make you happy. A lot of us think success breeds happiness. Grades makes you ha- make you happier. Uh, being a successful business operator makes you happy. And so we think perfection and getting a lot of things accomplished and done makes us happy. And we've trained that into our children. We've trained it into our brains, our minds that accomplishment is happiness. Uh, and um, uh, you know, control is happiness. And in reality, what you'll find out in all of the research on happiness is it's, it's not quite that way. Usually what the key is is happy people that find the method to find happiness in their existing life, those people tend to be successful. It's not that success breeds the happy. It's that happy people breed success. And that's some of the latest research on the subject. Um, so a couple of rules. I call them the ABCs of happiness, and they're very basic ideas. But the A of happiness is to appreciate today. We need to appreciate what is happening with us right now. Appreciate your life right now. Happier, happier people appreciate what's going on in their life. They actually appreciate what they're good at, and they're very, they're very tuned in to what they do well. They appreciate their strengths. They understand what their expertise is and what they know how to do. And they know their character strengths. They know their values and their beliefs. They also appreciate others, and they see what others are doing. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Happy people um, appreciate the fact that others are part of their life, part of their team, and they can see the good in what's happening and happier people appreciate the positive, not just that everything is positive, but they see the good that is happening daily. And um, the ability to see the good every day tends to change you, right? We can leverage good things. If, if we have more of a negative mindset, then all we tend to do is pick up all the negative. And um, a, a lot of pessimists would say, well, yeah, well, that's the best way to be, right? Then you're not going to be taken advantage of. Yeah, but not being taken advantage of does not make you happy. It also does not make you a great business person to play every interaction as as a way that to make sure you're not going to get harmed. 
at some point you have to actually go reaching for the other things, the other benefits. So uh, the A's are to appreciate what is. Um, the B's of life uh, are really about believing in tomorrow. Happier people have a strong belief about what their future looks like. And they, they want to be a part of their future and they want – and they know what their future should look like. They have a strong belief, a strong hope in what they can accomplish and do um, tomorrow. And uh, that means they have a strong connection to their purpose in life. They, they have a mission. They understand what life is. They're trying to, to actually um, – to, to be able to be in their lives in, in a more active way and to fulfill their mission and their purpose and their passion and they're connected to it. And really that to me is one of the, the greatest, I think, benefits of this whole uh, happiness movement is to know that you have a life that's pretty powerful and if you can believe in it, uh, in tomorrow being a good thing, it's awesome. In fact, they actually define happiness as an experience of positive emotion. It's pet pleasure combined with a deeper feeling of meaning and purpose. So ask yourself, do you have more meaning in your life? Do you have more purpose in your life? Because if so, you're probably going to be happier. And the C's of happiness are simply to connect deeply with others. Happy people connect more deeply with other people, which a couple things that means is they are intentionally not just zoning out. They don't just numb themselves with media, with technology, with Netflix. So they turn off their numbing. And uh, they don't just try to medicate themselves away. They don't drink themselves into oblivion. They don't. Uh, they don't. They don't just phase out every night and turn off every night. And they also connect deeply with other people, which is hard for many because they they don't want to be vulnerable. And so we, these are the things we've got to work on: appreciating what is, believing in what will be, and connecting along the way. ABCs of happiness. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about you know international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world, as we just learned, the more information that we can gather and garner, the better, right? But instead, uh, a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh, uh, beliefs and um and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have, when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game, all the kids are out there playing, and um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it, and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When they're, well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No, no. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right? Because... The reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? We we need to in our conversations assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing. 
why that person would would be completely frustrated and and angry about something. I um we had a a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere. Just wouldn't. Just stuff can happen that just horrible wouldn't let it happen. No. I mean, and, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over. They all got to do it, so she'd get to go stay there until, you know, late, and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? And uh, a lot of other parents were frustrated, like, just, like, what, you don't trust us? You don't think we're going to do something to your daughter? Is that what this is about? It's not. But come to find out, the girl had been, the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover. And it's still part of her mindset. It hurts. It it hurts bad. And the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through, you understand why she protects her daughter that way. It makes it understandable. These things don't always make things right or wrong, whatever that is, but it does make it understandable. So if you want more power with people— Try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation. Uh, just like we were just learning uh, from Anna Rosling Ronanland, slow down the the interpretation. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is. So just remember, none of us have all the data, and if you don't have the data, don't just quickly make it up. Go try to figure it out. Go try to gather more data. And then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it. And even worth it with people that drive us crazy. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Could you ever be accused of being a clingy partner? Are you just too unwilling to let go of your loved one, your your significant other, your uh, you know your companion for life. You just too clingy. There really is uh, there, there's there is a an issue where some of us in our relationships, when we have kind of an unsafe attachment, we might end up being what's called too anxiously attached, right? Where we are constantly wondering where our partner is. Why are you here? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you, uh, you know, why haven't you called me? And and we become a little too needy, a little too stuck uh, on on each other. Now, right, it's good, to, it's good to like each other, right? It's good to want to be with each other. But clinginess is a whole different ballgame. In fact, here are some questions for you. Uh, I put together a little uh, quiz called the clinginess quiz. Here you go. Has your partner, this is how you can identify if you might be a little bit too clingy. Has your partner expressed concerns that you're clingy or needy? Have they ever told you you just you're just a little too needy? Do you get depressed 
or anxious when your partner isn't around during the day? Like, do you do you miss them so much that, you know, you get a little depressed? Do you place unrealistic expectations or demands on your partner because of your concerns? Do you put like a demand? And I've had clients that have demanded that their partner text them three times a day. Do you feel like you are less valuable and or less important because your partner is more independent than you are? You know, because the mere fact they want to go out and, you know, do something, you know, go golfing, does that terrify you? Well, what am I going to do all day? That takes three hours. Uh, are your thoughts or and fears keeping you from focusing on other things? Can you not move on and go do your other work that you need to do because you're too worried about what your partner might be doing? Do you have a childhood history of abandonment or trust issues? Do you, have you ever felt like your your parents maybe weren't there for you and you know, you've known for a long time that you've you just have a fear of people not being there for you. And do you suffer a strong, consistent sense of fear of losing people who are close to you? Do you worry that people might die, that people might not come back? Because if you do, you may have other issues going on, like an attachment disorder or abandonment issues. And that's where, you know what, if it's just fine, we'll work on it, right? But uh, one of the keys would be to get to the root and to go get some help. It's a perfect time to go get a counselor and let the counselor help you figure out what's going on, why are you so clingy, and what what really is the deeper fear. Because you might think that holding on to the one you love is the key, but the tighter you grip, the more likely you are to lose the one that you love. And so we want uh, to be close to our partner. We want to show that we care. In fact, we in the Bible, we even talk about you've got to cleave under your partner, right, your spouse, and unto none other. And um, I I looked up the word uh, cling and the word cleave. Listen to this. Cling means to hold fast to or adhere closely to something as by gripping or sticking in contact with it. Uh, To cleave is to adhere closely or stick and cling to remain faithful to it. And also um, the word cleave is also a verb, which means to part or split, like a meat cleaver. Uh, is something that splits um, between division lines, natural like division lines, right? So um, to be uh, to cleave unto someone means you actually do stick, you remain faithful to that person. It also means that um, at some point you don't, you, you've got to be independent enough to have your own life. You've got to be somebody that is um, strong enough to to be able to go your on your own. And then when we come back together, life seems to be better. That's called interdependence, right? So just check it out. If you've got a little too much clinginess going on, it's time. Watch out. If you uh, stick too much, then others are going to have to pull away from you just to maintain their freedom. And you don't want that. It's actually the opposite of what you want. Anyway, just my little idea, my little coach's corner.
Less than 1% of American adults today are proficient in a foreign language that they studied in a U.S. classroom. With that in mind, Professor Amy Thompson sees that there are benefits that make learning a second language worthwhile, and she joined us not long ago to instruct us. I began the interview by asking Amy Thompson to talk about the findings from her research and if learning a language does increase our tolerance toward others. Well, yes, I mean... um there's different ways to look at the idea of improving tolerance and a couple of different ways. One is an increased tolerance of cross-cultural understanding. And the other one, which is really more focused on research that I do is an increased tolerance of ambiguity, which means the ability to interact with people or situations when you may not know exactly what's going on. Hmm. And I mean, part of that is it seems like to get into another language, you I guess it's one thing to learn the language. It's another thing to get into the culture and learn the language in the culture. Is is there a difference between learning it, you know, in, in a in a classroom um, from a teacher, you know, in the United States learning Spanish in the United States versus actually being in the community, being in Argentina or South America or somewhere? Uh, yes, uh, there's definitely a difference. And even there's different terms for those types of language learning. So the type of language learning that you might do in a classroom is called instructed language learning and the type of language learning where you might just say, hey, I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to go to Costa Rica and pack a suitcase and you just you know, start living with a host family or some friends you find online or something like this is called um, nat- more, it's a naturalistic approach or naturalistic language learning. And I think probably for there's pluses and minuses to both of those. And I think that some people are more do better in a, in a classroom instructed learning, learning situation, and some people do better in a more naturalistic uh, approach or a more naturalistic setting. Um, basically, if if the language instruction in the classroom is done well, it should sort of mirror though this naturalistic approach in the sense that maybe a lot of you guys listening, and you know, I know when I was first learning languages. In junior high, I, you know, learning French meant memorizing verb charts, right? Well, right. language learning really isn't supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be more, um, how can I effectively communicate? Oh, if I make a mistake in grammar, that's fine. Am I getting my message across? That's the important thing. And so if language teachers in classrooms are doing their job, they're more or less preparing students to, you know, go abroad or, you know, interact with people in their, um, you know, speech communities at home that do speak these other languages. Mm. It's um, I I learned Spanish, lived abroad for two years and used my Spanish and then I hadn't used it for years. But the other night I started watching a Netflix series where they speak Spanish and was use I was using subtitles. And I noticed mm-hmm. the longer I got into it, the more I could just naturally go back to my second language. I could I no longer even needed the subtitles. I could just listen and I was getting it. So is it mm-hmm. is because I, I, part of what one of the points you bring out is that being bilingual helps us filter out distractions. Is it just mm-hmm. that it's using our brain differently? Is it using more of our brain? What is it doing? It is. Well, you know, learning your, your first language or your L1 is stored and processed in one part of your brain. And your second language is not that it's an entirely different process, an entirely different part of your brain, but it does use, you know, different aspects of your cognitive abilities. And in the sense, the phenomenon that you were just describing where you haven't used your second language maybe in a while, but then you, you know, hear someone speaking, or maybe you visit a country that you haven't visited in a while, and it takes you, you know, maybe 30 minutes or so to get, quote, you know, warmed up, Mm -hmm. or your cognitive 
juices flowing in the second language. And then you find that a lot of the language which you thought you've forgotten is resurfacing and you're able to process it again and use it with, um, I guess, relative ease than you thought maybe 30 minutes before. And so this is a phenomenon that many people that, you know, realize uh, when they haven't used the language in quite a while and then they are exposed to it again in a kind of an intense situation and they realize that, oh, actually, I didn't forget everything. I'm able to still communicate and, you know, process it, which is one reason why learning um, a lot of my research involves, you know, multilingualism. So not just learning one foreign language, but learning a, you know, a second foreign language. And um, my findings really strongly point to the fact that once you've learned your first foreign language, learning the subsequent ones are actually much easier. Really? Does it matter if it's like a Latin-based language versus going to Chinese? I mean, it matters, would, not at all. It doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and it's interesting, and a lot of people have that, that idea that, oh, well, of course, if you learn French, learning Spanish is going to be easy because right. they're both, you know, Latin-based languages and the structure is similar and, you know, so on and so forth. But um, and a lot of my research I've done, I do a lot of quantitative research, which means I collect, you know, data from hundreds of participants and use numbers. But I also do, you know, open-ended questions, which participants can write a few sentences about, you know, a certain topic that I ask. Or I do sometimes interviews where I kind of get deeper into some of the topics that I found interesting in the, in the quantitative results. And the first time I discovered this, I was doing uh, research in Brazil, and this was back in 2008, um, it was for my dissertation research, and one of my participants, I was interviewing her, and she said, well, of course, learning English is easy for me because I already speak Japanese. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, <laughs> okay, there's something here. There's yeah. something to this, you know, this processing effect. And, you know, the same thing, I'm, you know, starting to learn Turkish. My Turkish is okay. I can, you know, talk about food and clothes mostly. Um, well, the things that are I'm important. Finding- well, I, well, I know things to get around. Right. right. So when I'm there, I can you know call a taxi and ask him what he had for lunch, and it's a great conversation. Um, but I'm finding that a lot of the previous language learning experiences that I've had are explicitly helping me with my Turkish knowledge in terms of pattern finding and you know jumping to conclusions, hypothesis testing. I see relations in vocabulary that maybe aren't evident, and people with different language backgrounds may not have the same types of, you know, inferences that I would make. But, you know, so really, to answer your question, it doesn't matter what the subsequent language is um, for most people. And some people don't see a connection or a perceived, you know, positive interaction with previous language they've studied, and they don't think it helps them. And if they don't think it helps them, then, of course, it doesn't. So you right. have to be willing to be open and see this connection. Uh, is, is Which comes first, the learning of the language uh, or because I, one of the things I read um, in your article was about uh, we become more creative by doing it. We we might mm-hmm. be a more risk taking. So are we more a risk taker anyway? And that's what drives us to want to learn languages. Or are we more learning languages and that makes us risk takers? You know, it's interesting that it's it's hard to determine causal effects with, you know, a lot of aspects of uh, applied linguistics research. And I would say that, well, first of all, a lot of people are required to take language, right, right, in school. And so the ones that perhaps continue it long term are the ones who have enjoyed the experience. But I don't think it necessarily has to do with their personality traits per se, but also about interaction with their classmates, their colleagues, the instructor, the materials used, how positive of an experience it is, and whether they're 
you know, inclined to continue has a lot more to do than just their personality. I will also say that personality characteristics, we're finding out more and more that these types of characteristics, which we once thought were innate, like language aptitude mm-hmm. or even, you know, IQ and these types of things, there's sort of a baseline, I guess, starting point for everyone. But then those features are really quite dynamic and they change a lot based on the context and the situation. Um, so if one maybe is more creative to begin with, a little bit more than another classmate, if that person has a, an awful language learning experience or, for example, has a very high level of anxiety, which isn't mitigated by the instructor, then that person might stop, even though the person might have had you know, a higher level of creativity or you know, tolerance for ambiguous situations to begin with and his or her classmate. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, when I was learning Spanish, um, I, I don't have anxiety, but I'm pretty highly sensitive. So I actually mm-hmm. I get feedback from people and I'm very adept at see, receiving feedback. And I remember when I would speak and I would notice that they noticed that I was kind of new at it. Um, mm-hmm. It actually shut me down because I'm like, oh, uh-huh. boy, they're noticing how not how I'm not a very good communicator here. And so it, it seems like if you didn't have that barrier <laughs> – um, uh-huh. of knowing of how effective you are or ineffective, you might just, you know, wing it, say more, speak more. Sure. And that has a lot to do with um, the kind of the second theme in the article I talked about, which is the tolerance of ambiguity, right? Right. So, I mean, language learning as adults, it's, it's a difficult thing to do because we're used to be able, we're used to being able to express ourselves intelligently, right? I mean, you know, we, if your English is your first language, you can have conversations about any topic you want, essentially, that you know something about, like religion or politics or, you know, the weather or whatever you want to talk about. But when you're starting to learn a second language, a lot of older learners get very discouraged because they have all these great thoughts that they want to express, either in the classroom or outside of the classroom, and they don't have the words. Mm. And so, and, and as you just said, in your experience, people might notice, oh, you're just learning or, yeah. you know, so on and so forth, which, you know, maybe makes them a little bit nervous or makes them want, kind of want to shut down. But I think the key is to just forge on right ahead and not be worried about, oh, I didn't understand that, so I'm going to freeze, or, oh, someone noticed that my accent is different, mm-hmm. so I just shouldn't try anymore you know, these types of things. Yeah, shut, and not the, shut down. Things, right, exactly. Those things don't matter. I mean, the way your, your accent doesn't matter. I know there's a kind of a big uh, misperception that, oh, if I just study really hard, I'm going to sound like a, quote, native speaker of mm-hmm. the target language, which, you know, as an adult, is I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a goal that shouldn't be the main goal of a language learner. So um, adequate communication, effective communication, interacting with the target language and the target culture really should be the main goals. And just, you know, advice to any people, you know, struggling with learning a second language out there, a foreign language, just keep doing it. Keep putting yourself in situations where you have to use the language. And then eventually it's going to become easier and easier. And you're going to become more and more successful. You you mention a lot the phrase tolerance of ambiguity. Uh Um, So explain to just the lay listener that you've already mentioned and given us ideas. What are some more ways that having a tolerance of ambiguity is beneficial to society? Because we live in a society where it seems like a lot of people argue opinions as if they're facts. Uh And um, and it's creating a lot of tension in our culture right now. Well, sure. And I mean, a tolerance of ambiguity, it's actually the, the two topics that I wrote about in this How Language Learning Improves Tolerance article 
are related. So tolerance of ambiguity also relates to tolerance of accepting and trying to understand people from different cultural backgrounds, right? Or even with different political ideologies or different religions or, you know, the list could go on and on. Just tolerating the quote in, in, the, in applied linguistics, there's a term, you know, the other, which means just someone who may be different from you, right? Yeah. Um, and so the idea of, I'll use a very simple, you know, example. So in conversation styles, if you're, you know, if you're used to kind of the more English American conversation style, you're sitting around talking and you politely wait till the person finishes and then you insert your opinion and it kind of goes around in a nice, you know, turn taking calm conversation style, right? And so I vividly remember, um, I did a study abroad program in France when I was in college, and I went to stay with some friends a couple of weeks, some French friends a couple of weeks before my program started. And at the dinner table for the first week, I just, I was scared to say anything because it appeared that people were shouting at each other all the time. And really, it took me about a week to realize that that was just a normal kind of conversation style. And then I was able to then insert myself and jump in and, yeah. you know, disagree vehemently with what someone was saying and, you know, so on and so forth. So just the act of saying, oh, that's not, people aren't being rude by interrupting. That's just their cultural background and conversation style. And that's, you know, that's a simple example, but there oh, yeah. you know, many, many like that. Um, well, and it, it, it broadens your mind like now, I mean, and this is, that was just France. I mean, right, let's sure. not even talk about now Turkey and you're learning mm-hmm. Turkish and sure. let alone every other culture that we don't understand. So it almost creates right. a space, I guess, ambiguity of learning in my world of communication theory. It just creates a space, a learning, a space where you allow things to keep floating while you make sense of them. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you're not, you know, I think I mentioned in my article when you're talking to someone, you're not going to be able to stop them and say, like, hang on, I don't know that word. Yeah. Look it up. Let me process it. You have to just kind of make an intuitive guess and keep going. And sometimes you guess wrong and sometimes you guess right. But you're always going to get feedback from your the person you're speaking to or in applied linguistics, you call that your interlocutor. So you're going to get feedback from this person, whether your guess was right or wrong. So if you kind of guess in one way and go in a direction, you have to be able to also watch for cues to that person, you know, maybe furrows their eyebrows to say, oops, I, I don't really know where you're going with this. And then you think, oh, maybe it meant this other thing that it could have possibly meant. Yeah. And you kind of bring the conversation back to a, a different direction. And so it's, it's exhausting, right? Um, I know that I don't know if you experienced this when oh. you were living abroad for the first time. But, man, the first time I was uh, abroad, I slept more than I yep. ever thought Headaches. was possible because, you know, my mind was processing 100% of the time when I was awake, so I just needed a lot more sleep. Yeah, I had a headache every night. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, when yeah. is this going to end? And I remember going to bed. I, in my head, I would be translating nonstop. And then mm-hmm. you reach this moment where I remember dreaming in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I think I've reached the moment. Or when the headaches go away and now all of a sudden you're just getting it. You are in tune. You're dialed mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to translate yeah. in your head. But then a, mo- a word would come up and you'd write the word down. i got to remember that one. What was that? Sure. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's really neat. Um, what would you – so just as a parent, we've got about a minute left. What mm-hmm. What would you – how would you, you know, engage your kids to be more excited about learning a language? Well, you know, I think um, 
I'll give you an example of what my husband tells me about his process of learning English when he was younger. Um, he loved it. He, you know, he grew up in Turkey, and of course, you know, Turkish is his first language. Mm. And but he did Saturday classes of English learning, and he said it was like the best day of his week. And he he talked a lot about the language teacher that he had, where the the teacher didn't you know didn't have a stressful environment, encouraged students to speak. Did games and songs. He said, looking back, he doesn't remember it as a class, hmm. but then he realized he learned. So I think the key is to keep it fun, especially at a very young age, right? Because kids yeah. need to play, they need to interact, they need to have fun and giggle and you know laugh and you know do these things that kids are supposed to do. They're not supposed to you know on after school or on Saturdays sit at a desk and like write verbs. I mean, that's not yeah. you know the conjugate. Way to con- yeah, oh, I hated right. that. You know, verb charts. I mean, that's. I think we all have negative flashbacks to those situations, which are they're important in the yeah. verbs, but not maybe in verb charts. But anyway, I guess keep it fun and keep it light, and you know, keep you know maybe focusing on the cultural aspects and the music and the art and the food and you know these types of things to really not just get kids, but to get all people kind of interested um, to know what learning a second or foreign language can do for them once they're out of a classroom setting. Love it. And get immersed. Get into it. Uh, Professor Amy Thompson, thank you again for joining us. We so appreciate your insight. Uh, Amy Thompson is Associate Professor of Linguistics at the University of South Florida and uh, wrote a wonderful article that we'll be putting up on our uh, Twitter page, How Learning a New Language Improves Tolerance. Great learning for all of us. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. Uh, As Amy Thompson was talking about the importance of um, learning a second language, it is interesting. I I have friends that both speak Spanish or uh, other languages, and they they make it a habit in their family to to use those languages more. And they, they actually do it as a way to to bring themselves t- together because they both speak Spanish. So why not speak more Spanish and then keep your language alive? It's something that you can do together. It actually uh, seems to energize their relationships a little bit. And I realize that whatever it is, um, you can make anything a hobby or uh, you know a learning opportunity. My father-in-law learned Spanish just on the side. He was a doctor, a cardiologist, and for fun, he wanted to learn Spanish. So he would have uh, anybody that spoke Spanish in his um, when he was doing his procedures, he would make them speak Spanish to him. And every day on the drive in, he'd listen to Spanish um, recordings and try to learn how to do it. And now he's fluent in Spanish. Like, come on. He made did it as a hobby. There really are a lot of things that we could probably try to do with our significant other, our loved ones, where we we actually can find more ways to connect, find more ways to be together on a hobby, find more ways to be together, whether it's language or whether it's just, you know, getting out and uh, enjoying tennis or riding bikes or whatever you like to do together. But um, one of the things I, I hear a lot from my clients are, you know, they fall out of love. It's just not easy to keep the fire alive and the flame burning. And um, I, I, I'm i like, yeah, well, sure, passion. You know, you want passion in your marriage, but 
passion takes energy, and you've got to somehow engage energy in your marriage. If you want more passion and connection, you're going to have to exert more energy. Oh, yeah, see, I don't have time for that. I kind of just want to take a pill that I just uh, gives us passion. But uh, many marriages are, are really starving because we don't exert the energy we need, just like we don't exert the energy that it takes to, to make um, something like learning a language takes energy. I, I learned a language and I'm still not focusing on it or, or giving it any energy. And when you don't give something energy, it fades. You start to lose it. And so I would just challenge all of us, if you want to make things important to you, you're going to have to give it some energy. We always talk about just giving it time, and time is great, but it also is going to take energy. You're going to have to decide how, you know, how bad you want something and is it worth the energy you have to to take. In fact, uh, my kids were saying the other day, "Hey dad, let's buy a boat. We want a boat. Let's get a boat." And in my head, the whole decision is about energy. <laughs> because my kids have never they don't know what it feels like to ski all day and then come off the boat uh, and be done and bring the boat in and then have to spend the next few hours cleaning the boat, you know, and drying the boat and washing the boat and taking care of the boat. They don't know what that's like. But in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really not even about skiing, you guys. But then others would say, yeah, but that's how you teach your kids to work, right? You teach them to work that. Yeah, but that's just more energy. So um, think about it. What takes your energy and what gives you energy back? And that's probably um, something that we all ought to be looking at. If you want more excitement in life, if you want more connection in marriage and relationships, if you want more um, you know, learning and growing, you're going to have to figure out how to ex- you know, energize uh, yourself enough to go do something about it. Also, maybe you're going to have to cut down on other things that you're doing. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm not – I can't – do that. I don't have the bandwidth to keep doing all of these other things. But um, it also, there is benefit in um, finding activities where you could like work together as a family and use and conserve all that energy to, for example, be with your family. We play tennis as a family, and that makes it so every time we go do our hobby, we're doing it as a family. And that all of a sudden gives us not only time together, but something that we can share together, something that we enjoy together, and uh, something that brings us a lot of peace. So life is good, and whatever it is you choose to you know, you know, know, excel at or make a hobby or bring into your life, let's do it. That's great. And manage your energy as you do it and see if you can involve more people into the process. Then all of a sudden your hobbies become something that are additive to your family life instead of something that divides you away from your family. Fun stuff, folks. Trying to do what we can to, to stay together as a family during this this uh, crazy life we're living. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, live a healthier, happier family life. Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, she joined us uh, to talk about some strategies for how we can change ourselves and how we can help others change. I began the interview by asking, why is change so hard? Well, I think one of the reasons it's hard is we've gotten in a bad habit 
to the to the level that it's literally in our subconscious programming. Yeah. So it it's just it's it's a hard wired program. We don't and, want we don't want to let it go. Well, yeah, there's subconsciously. That, a whole, there's a whole part of you that is behaving that that bad way for a reason because you think it protects you or you've learned it somewhere and you think it's the right way to behave. So it's kind of like we have one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake at the same mm-hmm. time. We want to change, but we don't want to change. And there we stay. And if you moving. don't change, then that means we should believe that deep down there's a re- there's a reason stopping you. Yeah. Usually we're afraid of the change. We're afraid of the commitments and responsibilities that will come if we do change. Mm-hmm. So it just feels safer to stay where we are. Ugh. But it mean, but then too, I guess if you stay there long enough and the change was necessary, something's going to break. It is. It might be your partner's <laughs> like, I'm done. And then the pain has to get so bad that the pain of staying is worse than the fear of changing. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, now I'll change it. How many times have you seen... Somebody that wouldn't change, wouldn't change, wouldn't change. Finally, one person is done. They're done. And then now that person has all the motivation to change. Now yeah, I'll change. Often what do you takes want? something that severe to get us moving. But I, I'm sure you see this too. If, if we can work with someone and show them how mm-hmm. to change and that it is doable and it's not as hard as you think and you have some support to get you there, you can do it. But you and I have talked yeah. about how most people wait until – Things are just pretty much destroyed before they seek out some yeah. help to change. They they think they can do it by themselves. A lot of people think it's a sign of weakness to ask for some help, and so they but don't do it. Do I really need to change? Late. Do I need to change, or should I just force my partner to change so they're adapting to my maladaptive behavior? Well, that's, <laughs> it, that's one what we tend option. to do is we blame we want everyone else to change to fit us instead of we should change to just yeah. be healthy. Well, and and I think psychologically we would prefer that the problem was with the other person. Yeah. If we could just change them, that would fix it. <laughs> but the reality is we are on this planet to grow and learn and develop our character. I, I mean, I believe life's a classroom. We're here to grow. That means changing. Yeah. Well, and, and think about it. If not, you would have been like you were when you were 14. Yeah, glad I'm not yeah. who I Thank was heavens. when I was 14. You've changed a little bit, right? So how do we do it? What are some of the steps to to change, to actually create change? Okay, well, the first thing is you've got to be consciously aware of what you're doing instead of having it be a subconscious program that's just running. Neuroscientists tell us 95% of the choices we make, we're making subconsciously. Mm-hmm. So that's most of our behavior is driven by subconscious mind and we're not even aware of why we're doing it. Yeah, we're not aware. So the first step for everybody is to recognize what's happening. And that's one of the reasons we use that fear assessment that's on my website is it's a way to show someone on paper what's happening at the subconscious level. And if you want to get a peek inside your head for free, you can go to my website and take the fear assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Because it it does show you what's going on and why you're behaving the way you are. Yeah. The first step, we've got to be consciously aware of it. And then we usually are going to have to change our perspective and look at things in a different way. Don't you find oh. with your clients, as soon as we change perspective, it just changes everything. Well, which is why if somebody on the outside will no longer take your ineffectiveness and they change – that creates a major perspective change. Like it forces you into oh, a whole the new reality. Oh, status quo is no longer okay. Which is why sometimes we keep each other in each other's systems. 
We, I keep you there. You keep me here. We stay there, and together we frustrate. That beautiful dysfunction that's <laughs> <laughs> keeping that us together. But so as soon as one of us says, I'm done, so I can't influence your perspective change. I mean, Absolutely. I can't make you change. But if you just, change, mm-hmm. I will automatically have to change in my interactions yeah. with you. Um, I also think it's really helpful that we're always learning and and being open to new ideas, reading books, yeah. listening to the Matt Townsend Absolutely. show every day. You get a new perspective because yeah. everything that you learn can help you to look at things in a different way. And you could even just look at what you want to be in 20 years and that could create a change. So you can force your own perspective change by just looking at it differently. How do how would, how do my kids feel when I act this way? How do I want to be when I'm, I mean, if you've ever just gone to a funeral of somebody your age, it's a pretty big perspective, perspective change. Perspective change, for sure. So it's funny how life gives you every chance to do this. Well, and you're a big reader mm-hmm. like I am. We're always talking about books we've been reading. Yeah. And I find almost every self-help book that I read gives me a new perspective on something I didn't see before. Yeah, exactly. There's so much amazing material out there that we can be growing and sh- shifting all the time. So it's huge. Change your perspective, our perspective, okay? And then a couple little things that I do with my clients when we're trying to get them to change themselves, we challenge them to break out of their comfort zone on as many other levels as they possibly can. Do everything you can different. If you always wear basically the same outfits, Mm -hmm. wear something different. Order something different for lunch. Try new foods. Drive home a different way every day this week. And it, I mean, it sounds kind of minor because we're talking about all these things outside your life or your relationships, but they've proven psychologically, the more you'll break out of your ruts and just shake yeah. up your life and do things different, it gets your brain more ready to change the way you think and the yeah. way you see the world. So we challenge them to just and it doesn't go matter. outside their comfort zone. Clothes, it you're helps. saying it doesn't, even just the route you take home, doesn't matter. Anything different. Anything different that's out of your just stuck routine. Because most of us that are really stuck, yeah, we're not just stuck in that area. We're stuck everywhere. We're just caught in the so same true. way of being. So if I can get people to just shake it up, eat at restaurants you've never tried, read books you've never read, anything different, it's going to help you to get ready it's to such change. Such a great, I and mean, it's so simple. Another thing we recommend our clients do is clean some of the clutter out of their house. The more that you're holding on to all this old stuff in your house, the more you're also holding on to your old way of being. Mm. So we find if we can get you to clean out your closet and get rid of all the old crap you haven't worn in a year and open up some empty space in your house, you're actually opening space for a new way of being. And I like you to... To literally think with every item you're putting in that box, I'm sending this old me out and making room for a new me to come in. It's interesting. Who would think that just clutter? But what what about the person whose issue is they keep nothing? (laughs) They they literally have nothing. They keep nothing. They want nothing. They're attached to nothing. Yeah. I actually taught this principle to some of my new coaches the other day, and I have one exactly like that. She says – she travels light. She never wants to own more than what would fit in her car at any moment so she could leave. <laughs> so her her reaction to her fear, instead of holding on to things and having a scarcity mentality, she's having a stay unattached yeah. mentality. And it Don't looks like yeah, it looks like she's so open minded and but she's still afraid. 
totally still afraid. So we all said, we'll pack up our stuff and send it to her. And then her job is to keep it. <laughs> yeah, everybody no, take kidding. their junk and send it to her. <laughs> no, but she's got to recognize that the, it it's okay to hold on to some things. And, and that would actually be a good practice for her. I mean, really. So in her house, she should maybe keep a few more things sure. that she would have to well, deal with. Well, that would be out of her comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. So she'd be stretching and changing a little yeah, bit. totally. Okay, then we also really encourage people to get some outside help. And and we've talked about this so often, you and me, that couples we work with, they don't come in and ask for help until they are on the verge right. of divorce. Yeah, they're done. And and they've said so many hurtful things. I mean, why do we let it go that long? And, yeah, and we're so, oh, and you're so damaged that even if you could fix it, sometimes it's not worth fixing because you've destroyed each other so bad. Totally. It's hard. So I know you would echo me in saying this. Please, yep. everybody out there, the first sign of mm-hmm. problems, get some outside help. The difference it'll make is just a hundredfold because when you get an expert that knows exactly what they're doing, they can help you fix it so fast oh, and easy. Yeah. Aren't most of your couples just shocked yeah. that it- that it's this, this is easy. easier to fix. Well, isn't it? And maybe get help in a way that's different. Because how many times have you had somebody that came in and they've been to four counselors or they've been to three counselors, and this, it's the same thing for every one of them? They, yeah, it was all the same. It was all the same. Just the thought that it's always going to be the same. Well, then don't do counseling. <laughs> then go do, do a ropes do course different. in the middle of Nepal, and or climb a mountain, or do something crazy. Do something different that is so different. That there has to be a different – if everything's always the same, it's you. Yeah. It's not your counselors well, you're going and to. and don't you find – for most people, you've got to find the right counselor for you uh-huh. because everybody's so different. The problems yeah. you're having are different. So don't give up if one doesn't work. Right. Definitely keep looking to I, find – I always say and find it until it works, right? So we're not just here to get it off the list. Oh, yeah, I've done counseling. You, you find a help. You find and seek out help until it works. Absolutely. Don't you find a lot of the most successful people I know that have great relationships, they seek out help all the time and oh, they yeah. don't even necessarily uh-huh. need it. But they're reading books, they're attending seminars, they're they're growing and learning and it just m- creates this really rich life. This rich life. Uh, that's uh, Kim Giles again from Clarity Point Coaching. Giving us insight, helping us understand about uh, where the true change comes from. And uh, many, many times, if not most of the time, it comes from deep inside of ourselves. If you really want motivation, look inward, not outward. In the long run, that'll uh, carry you the farthest. We'll continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Life happens, right? Things happen, and it makes it so we can't always, you know, expect things to go the way you would have wanted them to go. Uh, kids might have to move home economic situations, the degree that they were trying to obtain um, wasn't a degree necessarily that they could make the money they need to make. Uh, Other issues, medical issues, health issues, psychological issues, there's a a lot of reasons why we may need to look to go back home. 
And so one of the things I would uh, suggest, I think, to all of us is, A, let's all judge a lot less those situations, because we don't know why our neighbor's kids are still living at home. But one of the things I know that we can do is, and, and I'm noticing it with my own children, I have uh, six kids, a daughter and five boys, and the daughters, she went to school, got married, moved on, has a house, doing her thing, growing in a healthy way. My All my kids are, are at it. They're out doing the things that they're supposed to do, trying to figure out life. One is away at college, um, and one just got home from an LDS mission. But what is amazing to me is I is the level of parenting that you still are doing with these kids, as even as you've thought you launched them. You know, I think we a lot of us think that once we just kind of shoot them out into the world, they're not going to boomerang back. But the reality is my role as a father doesn't end. I can keep teaching more and more and giving other ideas and other information. And I'm just grateful that they're willing to come back to ask for help, for advice, for insight, because it allows me to keep influencing them. And one of the things I'm realizing is, oh, boy, I wish I had maybe taught them some more things when they were younger. I wish I had set some better expectations about life and how things work when they were younger. So remember that um, if if you don't teach them younger, you're going to get a chance probably to teach them when they're older. And so maybe let's spend more time trying to empower our kids. I always just think of the the birds that like take their little cute little baby bird and just push them out of the nest. And that bird better be ready to fly because it's it's time to fly. Um, and there's a difference between, I think, abandoning our kids and just throwing them out into the world and hoping they can make it versus truly empowering them. So what if we all spend a little more time with our, our kids making sure that they have the skills to to uh, to work? that they have a work ethic so they they understand that they have to get up every day and go make something happen to to not just let them only have dreams but also have the skills to make a dream become a reality because they know how to make a plan they know how to set a goal they know how to accomplish a goal and um th- there's a lot of tools there's a lot of resources i think for all of us to be able to teach these things to our kids. There are a million books. One of the things I, I've also just noticed in my own life with my own family is a lot of us keep shooting for perfection when really a little progress is all we need. We don't need to have the highest degree of completion of everything we do when sometimes all we need is some progress on a goal. We we don't need to um, have the perfect studio setup. I've been talking to my son about what we need is just a doable, actionable setup that would make it so my son could start creating his music. And when we get too caught up in the perfection of wanting the perfect studio, it might be actually just a way to have an impediment from risking and doing what we need to do. Every single one of us have goals and dreams that uh, that that we want to accomplish. But be careful because when you think um, – when you think that it's just easy to go live on your own, it's not. It's a, it's overwhelming for some of these kids to to know how to do it, to see how to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. 
And so there are benefits of like going to school or in our case, having our son go on a mission where we know he can do it on his own. He came home after two years and he he had gained weight. He was healthy. He knew how to exercise. He knew how to take care of himself. He still had his teeth, which meant he brushed his teeth regularly. You know, all these things we were worried about, he could handle. Then we just take him to the next level and take him to the next level. I think each and every one of us as parents, it's, it's upon us to empower our, ch- our child, not just to abandon them, not just to send them on their way, but make sure that inside of each of our kids is the power to thrive and to succeed. And um, I think however we go about doing that when they're younger will influence their abilities as they're older. And I think each and every one of us should make sure that our kids have the social skills they need, the emotional skills and management skills they need to succeed in life, that they have the intellectual abilities, that they've either learned their kid, their gifts and their talents, and they're doing something toward what they're passionate and have gifts and talents around, or that they're on, the, you know, on their way to discover those things. I think we need to make sure they're spiritually solid and strong, that they have some connection to a higher power and they know how to connect into that power to find peace when uh, days and times get difficult. Um, I don't think we should just hope they just get married and then they're out of your hair. I mean, I, you know how many times I work with people that just got married thinking that was the answer, but they didn't have any skills or tools or abilities or insight, and then they're supposed to go figure it all out with their spouse. I also don't think that we should avoid marriage either. We have way too many, I think, that are just afraid to go marry because it's different and it's hard. And I think a lot of that is because of us, we parents. We're the ones that have taught them that marriage is dangerous and scary and not quite what you thought it should be. So parents, we can do better. And uh, when, when our children do need to come home, let's sit down. Let's make a plan. Knowing the plan will change. But let's get real and let's be talking about it and let's be sharing your expectations, sharing your concerns and hearing their concerns. Let's give them enough freedom, but let's also give them some accountability as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And at work, you, uh, you're you stressed. You don't know what it is. Man, you, you feel so anxious, but you've never thought you were anxious. You know, life was you could handle stuff. But you feel like you're just losing it. What's going on with you? You may just uh, you may just be suffering from this this focus issue that Rasmus was talking about. The pressure starting to mount. So I, I put together a little list of some hidden signs that may indicate that you may have a little anxiety, a little anxiousness going on board. Right? It doesn't mean, and I don't love the label of yeah, you're just anxious. It's um, but you're feeling something going on. So here's some examples. And by the way, you'll notice it might simply mean to you can't – you maybe don't have anxiety, but you just can't focus. There's too much stuff going on, so we need to learn to prioritize and, and figure out what we can say no to. One sign is that you tend to procrastinate things. If you put a lot of important things off, you know, everybody puts something off in their lives, but and we delay, we procrastinate, but procrastination may give you the appearance uh, that you're working, but really what you're always doing is just thinking about what you need to do. So it, we, you know, we, we just think, I'll just delay it. I'll just keep delaying it. Um, if you keep procrastinating, it might be a sign that you're getting caught up in this too much 
you're being overwhelmed by it. And it's easier to just put it out, uh, ignore it, jump it, skip it instead of dealing with it. The fix would be instead of avoiding it or postponing it or, you know, moving and jiving, doing what you can to not have to deal with it, maybe just set a deadline and and choose to get it done. Get that one thing done. Find the one thing that you need to get done today and let's just get it done and not stop till we get that thing done. That would demand though, right, that you have a priority, that you know what your one thing is. Another thing that that tends to probably induce a lot of anxiety in us is this indecision because we maybe don't know what's most important and everything in this world seems important because it came over the phone and it did beep when I when I received the message. So obviously it's important. Um, the probably the problem is it's not always important just because it beeps. You know, that's just something you set on your phone, um, an alert or some type some type of warning. Decisions are hard for a lot of us. Um, it's uh, we have self doubt. We have a lot of overwhelm because we have so much to get done. We've made mistakes in the past, so our confidence is down. Anxious people, uh, or what I call uh, Ferraris. In a world full of Chevys, about 20% of people are, you know, more high sensitive, more highly tuned, more almost in a way high performance that they they might actually overthink everything. They overdo everything. They're overamped on it. So one of the fixes is simply to find ways to anticipate how you can, you know, maybe stay ahead, a little bit ahead of some of these issues. Uh, maybe find ways to simplify, find ways to not make everything so difficult. Another sign that you have a, a little bit of anxiety on board might be the fact that you overcomplicate everything. Everything you add so much more value to. And it's great. That's one of your gifts is to add value, but you don't need to add value to everything. Sometimes it's okay to just let it be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Maybe you don't need to perfect it by cutting off the crust. Well, the kids won't eat it. Well, then they'll learn to deal with the crust one way or another. But maybe what we could do is not make everything harder for everyone or, as we talked about last week, always seeking perfection. Another thing we tend to do is just make up stories. We just have lots of stories about why we don't do what we do, why we aren't getting the results we need, why things aren't happening. And if you tell a lot of stories instead of getting a lot of results, odds are you might, you might be a little anxious. So if you are telling stories, if you sense you're a perfectionist, if you tend to complicate and make things harder than they need to be, if you feel indecisive and you procrastinate a lot, my friend, you may have a little battle with anxiety. Doesn't mean you need to go get medicine. Doesn't mean you need to go to a doctor. What it does mean is you might want to start learning some resiliency skills, learning some mindfulness, learning to be in the moment, learning to be present, learning to say no, learning to find what your yeses are. Just uh, insight from your uh, neighborhood coach. All of us find it difficult to ask for help sometimes. Maybe it's because we don't trust a coworker, or perhaps we are just trying to be more self-reliant. We don't want to look like we need help. Whatever the reason, studies have shown that when we don't ask for help uh, from others, 
um, that uh, that not only our performance will suffer, but our team performance suffers as well. So here to speak with us about this today is uh, Mark Bolino. He's a professor at the University of Oklahoma, and he specializes in organizational behavior, international business, and human resources management. Uh, Dr. Bolino, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here, Matt. Nice to talk to you. You bet. Why? What is it about us? Why won't we just ask for help? You know, at work when we when we have too much work to do. Well, I think when we are in these situations at work, we're very conscious about how we look to others, how we're going to look to our coworkers, how we're going to look to our boss, and so I think some of that is is behind it. Um, but but really, when we need help, we start asking a lot of questions about, you know, why is it that I need help? Is it that this is too difficult for me? Is this, um, you know, something that I don't have the skills to do? Or, you know, maybe it's a legitimate reason. We start going through all of these, you know, processes in our mind about our image, about what it says about us, about what it says about others. And I think that's where we get sort of, sort of caught up. Mm. Is it... Is this self-imposed? I mean, is this something we've learned not to do because of how we've been managed, how we, how we've kind of grown up in the company, or, or is it is it or is it so? Is, has it been imposed by the company and the systems and the organization, or is it me just being insecure about me? Well, it's probably a combination of those things. Honestly, um, I, I'm not sure we know definitively what the what the causes are. If you look at sort of the basic. Uh, research and social psychology, we people just have a uh, sort of a, a fundamental apprehension about being helped. It, it raises these questions about our competence. It raises questions about are we going to have to return the favor? And and psychologically, we don't like to be uh, sort of constrained in our behavior. And so, if you help me, that means the norm of reciprocity says I'm going to help you in return. And so, you know, there's something about that um, where I don't want to have to be, you know, hemmed in in that way. So mm. there's, a, there's sort of a fundamental psychology behind it. But then, yes, the, the organization that we're in and the, you know, the expectations that the boss sets in terms of whether it's good to be helping others and to be receiving help, those also shape, you know, our decisions. We take all of that into account. Does, um, because it seems like, if I if I choose to work alone and not work um, with others, then I probably have to work longer. So is this one of the reasons why we are working so much longer? Well, sure, I would say that, you know, that can contribute to it, right? Um, you know, we just did a, a recent study looking at sort of the implications of of uh, of not accepting help or about having negative beliefs about accepting help from other people and, and one of the things that people said was you know even if i'm drowning in my work i would be you know i would rather work on it myself and get it done and so you know i i think there are people you, you know the reluctance to accept help from other people or to ask for help when they need it is contributing to this sort of overload and burnout and that sort of thing. What what else do you see happening because uh, we're unwilling to ask or unable to ask? How is it impacting our work life? Well, you know, again, this the this study that we did recently. We were looking at 
these beliefs about, you know, sort of negative beliefs that people had about accepting help. And one of the things that we found was that people that had these more negative beliefs about accepting help, you know, their job performance was systematically lower in terms of their uh, what they did formally, their, you know, their formally assigned tasks. It also undermined their willingness to help other people and be cooperative and sort of go the extra mile. Uh, and perhaps that is because they're uh, they're too busy themselves to to sort of give extra, or um, or maybe it's because they're not receiving help. They don't feel like they have to. We weren't able to to tease that apart, but but they were less creative because they're sort of in their own little world, perhaps. Um, you know, so it 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 affected their job performance negatively. It, it also affected uh, their work attitudes. They were less less satisfied and. Uh, more likely to be thinking about uh, leaving the organization, um, and and really they were see, seen less favorably by their supervisors. Mm. So uh, even though they sort of there's sort of this idea that if I'm refusing help or 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 not accepting help, that that somehow that's going to make me look self-sufficient and more competent. It, you know, at least our preliminary data suggests that. Supervisors had more favorable views of the employees who were more engaged in in helping and and receiving help and that that sort of thing. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? So so those that aren't willing to get as much help um, or help others or have just negative attitudes about it, they're they're less creative, they're less satisfied, and they're actually less appreciated, less liked. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think sometimes people are. You know, we we found that one of the big reasons why people were reluctant to accept help was that they thought it was going to sort of undermine their image at work, you know, that they were someone who needed help or couldn't get it done on their own. And really, our findings sort of suggest the opposite, that it was, you know, people who who were willing to to accept help, uh, that those people were seen more favorably by supervisors than people who had sort of these these negative attitudes about about being helped. And we, we know from other studies that being helpful at work is is generally seen positively by supervisors too. So um, you, you know, helping behavior is important for a collaborative environment, which uh, clearly organizations are. And so if you're if you're not willing to engage in that sort of behavior, uh, both giving it and receiving it, then it probably is going to reflect poorly on you. Mm. Did you do you have any idea of the percentage of people that have kind of those negative paradigms around helping, receiving, and giving help? Is it a yeah, so is it a big we, percentage? It, it, well, we when we looked at um, at some of our data, we had about half our respondents sort of agreed with this idea that if you accept help, somehow it undermines your competence. Um, and, and then we had, we, there, were, there were a couple other reasons that we found that people were reluctant. About 20% said that they were reluctant to, to accept help because they didn't want to feel obligated. They thought if they, they accepted the help, then that would, they would be obligated to return the favor. Um, and then we also found a smaller percentage, like 8 to 10% had misgivings about their coworkers' intentions, about why they're helping them. Are they somehow trying to make them look uh, bad for needing the help or, you know, that they had some sort of ulterior motive or that the coworkers were just, you know, not very competent? Um, 
but those were a smaller percentage of people. Interesting. So it's it's almost like we're a little neurotic. We're we're a little um, worried that either they're out to get us. They they obviously can't do it as well as we can. I don't want to owe you anything. Um, but in the end, all of these paradigms, all of these attitudes make it so others actually trust us less, want to do more, do less with us, and don't necessarily promote us, or managers don't necessarily revere us. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and we don't know for, you, you know, we weren't able to tease out specifically how, you, you know, why people have these particular beliefs or, um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, you, you know, some of this could be because of the organizational context. I mean, yeah. you may be in an organizational setting where you are the most competent person. And so accepting help from people, you know, could slow you down or, you happen to work for a, a supervisor who's, you know, who does uh, sort of promote a lot of individuality in the workplace, and so maybe it is going to make you look badly. So we we don't we're not able to sort of evaluate whether these were legitimate uh, negative beliefs that people were harboring, but um, but they held these beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, as you as you look at it in the research uh, too, I mean, it seems like. In in the end, organizationally, we probably need to figure out a way to to foster more interdependence, more cooperation, more team building. What are some of your your suggestions there? Well, I, I think I think we have to recognize that you know I, I guess as you were saying that people are are sort of neurotic about all of these uh, all of these issues, and so we need to to maybe confront them head on and, and sort of realize that people are going to maybe have this natural tendency to be reluctant to accept help and so that means as as managers and and you know as as employees that we want to we want to try and say hey you know we're we're all interdependent here we're all working collectively towards a goal and and it doesn't make sense for us to sort of be you know individual operators you know that and 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 sit down with with employees and say, you know, do you need help or, um, you know, make it more acceptable for people to help one another and to to make time for that. Maybe recognize those efforts in sort of positive ways when people are willing to ask for help and, you know, sort of praise people for being willing to ask for help and uh, for being willing to accept help, you you know, making those norms, different in in terms of the acceptability, I think, would address some of these concerns that people have in the back of their minds. Um, We want to think about what those concerns are and and then, you know, sort of address them. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, even incentivizing it, like you were saying, holding... Holding the cooperative person up as a star, right? The instead exactly. of instead of holding the independent individual up as the star. Yeah, and and I think there's a you know there's a fine line. Um, you know, some of my research is looking at what makes employees willing to go beyond the call of duty in different ways, helping others, staying late, things like that. And and a lot of times when you talk to managers. What they want to do is is sort of say, oh, okay, well, if you want more of that, we'll just pay them for it, right? So when I hear the word incentivize, I get a little bit nervous because part of what makes this behavior so valuable is that it's not really formally required. You know, we we want to 
we don't want to turn all of this stuff into you have to do this because it's part of your job. Right. You want it to sort of occur naturally. So it's sort of getting a balance. So incentivizing it in in the sense of um, making it acceptable, holding those people out as as model employees. I like that idea. Um, If we're talking about sort of uh, formally incentivizing with, with bonuses and things like that, putting it in people's performance evaluations, I, I might be a little bit more cautious about, you know, thinking about the costs and benefits of, of doing that. Right. I guess, too, we look at it, um, I mean, we, we hold up our long hours and our incredible work ethic and um, stick to as these signs that we're really great. But then in the end, we end up working such long hours and taking work home. How awesome would it be if our work allowed it that we were kind of our goal was to complete a lot more as a team and, you know, we all could help each other and we all go home a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you, you know, it's it's not sustainable for most people to to sort of keep, you know, doing more and more and more. And that's what's happening a lot in in organizations today is. Um, you know, people are taking on more than they can handle, um, and and they're getting it done sometimes, but but sort of at what cost? You, you know, especially personally in terms of your health and your family, that sort of thing. Right. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Mark Bolino. He is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and is at uh, at the Price College of Business at the University of Oklahoma and specializes in organizational behavior, international business, and human resource management. Is I mean, I guess some of this, um, it, it almost seems like we're moving into a new era, a new a new time where um, at some point we've got to, I guess, manage our efficiencies a little bit better. And I, I don't I guess I'm just trying to figure out how we how we teach this. And so because there is such an independent culture in our workplace that i want to i want to look good and if i'm always competing against the person next to me then it actually there is a disincentive it seems like to cooperate yeah yeah i, I mean i agree i i think a lot of organizations have sort of set that up where you, you know you you sort of see the more you can do that that's kind of your pathway up the up the you know you know up the career ladder um and you know, in the short term, for, I think for a lot of organizations, you know, they see that as sort of a positive. And, and I think I'm concerned in my research about, you, you know, how sustainable is that? We, you know, we, I talk about these behaviors, um, we call them citizenship behaviors, these sort of extra things that people do that contribute to the organization. Mm-hmm. And I've done some research on something I call citizenship fatigue, which is where eventually people start getting tired of being the person who's taking on all of these extra things. And what we found is that when people reach that point, they start cutting back on their citizenship. It's just not a sustainable, um, you know, a sustainable sort of thing. So, you know, one thing I think that a lot of companies can think about is how can I increase the engagement of other people in the organization because that's another thing that we see if you look at sort of those Gallup studies where they look at how engaged people are. Right. It's only about a third of workers who say that they are engaged. And then there's probably like um, 18% or so that are 
that are disengaged, and then there's a group that's sort of in the middle. They're, they're not highly engaged. They're just sort of going through the motions at work. Well, I think a lot of the burden is falling on that third. You, you know, there's yeah. people who are engaged keep having to do more and more and more because you have so many people who are not very engaged or even actively disengaged, sort of pulling against what the company is trying to do. And so if you could if you could increase the levels of engagement among those people who aren't really turned on at work and and are are sort of disgruntled at work, then I think you could take the burden off of that third that is, you know, highly motivated. Yeah, because absolutely. They can't keep that motivation, you know, indefinitely. Well, and especially when we um, sit there and we spend uh, all of this other time. It, 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 trying to be a good citizen, and then I'm the only one in the room doing it. Man, no wonder. Exactly. Then you lose your good third. Yeah. <laughs> then your sure. good third. Yeah. I mean, that's a scary day when the yeah. good third's exhausted. And, and in fact, that was one of the things that we found was, you, you know, people didn't mind going the extra mile as much when they felt like they were really part of a team where where they knew that other people would sort of be reciprocating that behavior. Right. You know, so it is just like you're saying, the findings bear that out, that it's it's worse when you feel like you're the only one yeah. who's sort of going the extra mile. Oh, that's intense. That's a scary day. Uh, Professor Mark Bellino, thank you so much for your insight. Uh, great insight into why we don't let coworkers help us. Uh, more, uh, um, you know, insights really than every one of us need to pick up our game. We need to ask help when we need it. We need to, to push cooperative behavior and more interdependence in our own workplace and allow people to help. Uh, so that becomes the norm. And uh, we'll keep giving you the ideas, the tools you need to uh, make your workplace a place you really want to be engaged in. And you can also go look up more Mark Bolino from the University of Oklahoma to find out uh, more of his writings as well. We'll continue the journey a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. So, you and the you and your spouse do you do you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect, or do you end up tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times? I wanted to uh, continue a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I, I found, a lot of the clients I work with, they might – one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in. And it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be you know, a cyclist and so they're always out cycling and doing their 100-mile uh, cycle trips every weekend – So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that – and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life, in your conversations, talking about what you do like to do together, what does work. If you like going out to dinner, then make that – 
an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food. You know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I'm, I lose him all October as he goes hunting. But the reality is there also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building a, a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, um, things that are positive. Uh, find out, uh, you know, you, you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt. And you might go, you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors. And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and, and you know, getting your family ready to, to send out to go, to, to go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off a, with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. And so it, that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We don't we don't engage in other activities. Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a, a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, A lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food sometimes, exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough, whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a, a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. Uh, Try some new things together. Stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. little coach's corner for you. You know, just ideas, folks. You don't have to do them. You can keep just doing what you're doing. We're here, though, to give you the tools, the information you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 
Kimberly Giles is the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching. She's a regular guest on our program. And a few months back, she joined the show to share some strategies on how to change yourself and how to change others. I began the discussion by asking for more tips on how to change yourself uh, first and then others. So if we're changing out of guilt or obligation or because we feel forced to by someone else, the change isn't going to be as positive and it may not even happen. You've got to have the right why that you're changing and it really needs to be a love and passion motivated reason. So I I really have my clients sit down and define why do I want to change? Yeah. Is it just so my wife won't leave me? Or do I want to be different? Do I want to be happier? What's the real Cuz if it's the negative it may not stick. Like I don't I want to change cuz I don't want my kids to grow up with a bad dad. That's yeah. different than because I want to be a I want powerful a happier source. life. I want to be a good influence yeah. on my kids. I want, yeah. If it's driven more by passion and love, you'll you will be more motivated. Mm-hmm. If it's obligation, which is really what's happening, if your wife says change or I'm leaving you, <laughs> <laughs> it's just not got the same power it behind doesn't. it, and it won't happen. Well, and then it almost just would breed fear, right? So then every iteration of it is going to kind of take you back to the same fear. Yeah, and it comes down to you. It's you don't want to change. Yeah. You're doing it because you feel like you have yeah, to. I'm totally good with you me. You <laughs> won't be motivated unless you want to change. That's so true. You know, we see that with just diet and exercise. Yeah. If you're doing it because you should, you won't do it. Mm-hmm. You've got to do stick. it because you want this and you got to want it bad. That's so true. <laughs> so Man. check your motivation. Yeah. Um, my last one was just don't expect perfection because – Change is a process, and it takes time. And any time you're trying to change, especially subconscious programming, things you learn from your parents to behave this way, and you've behaved this way for 40 years, it's not going to change overnight. This is going to be a process. So give yourself some slack. Well, and every step matters, right? So because the change isn't 1 to 100. It's if you just go from 1 to 1.4 – that one, that point four increase matters. It's, Absolutely, it's a layer that is yours now. You now own that point four increase. If you just get to two, that's great. You own the two. You own the one point increase it from is one to progress. two. It's, and every one of it, it's like otherwise you'll build something that has some big inflated bubble in it that will collapse on you eventually. It's just line upon line. Absolutely. Well, you and I were talking on the break about the four stages yeah. of change, and it's really helped. My clients and coaches to kind of understand these. So the first level is unconsciously incompetent. And this is where most of us are in that we're behaving badly, but we're not really aware of it or why. It's just our programming. Things just are weird. Yeah. You don't even know why. I mean, it's probably them. But we're functioning from that 95% of our choices being unconscious. You're not, it's not, you're not in charge of it. You don't understand it. And you're incompetent. Yeah, behaving badly. And Which isn't a bad place to be. You think that's just normal. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice because you're naive, you're ignorant. You think it's okay that you're this way, <laughs> yeah. but it's really not. Exactly. So the first step in changing is to become consciously incompetent. Now, this is where we've explained to you why you're behaving this way and what you're doing and how it's not working. And you're working on it, but you really... You're still behaving badly, yeah. but now you see it. Uh, and for most of my clients, this is the most painful oh, yeah. stage. People, ignorance is better. <laughs> That's what people think. Ignorance is better than me now knowing. 
Yeah, so we teach them how to communicate properly with your spouse, and they keep fighting, and they forget to use the formula that we've yeah. taught them. And then they realize it and they feel like a failure. This stage can be painful, but it's a necessary part of the process of change. You have to move through this stage. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do as we move through is to just keep practicing and doing the best you can. And like you said, a little improvement here and a little there, the change will come. Yeah. And we're moving towards stage three, which is consciously competent. Now, this is – I'm actually handling – the argument with my husband the right way. I'm using the formula, but it is taking a great deal of effort. It's hard. Run discipline. through those stages yeah. Matt taught me. That's yeah. right. Stick to it. Stick to it. Discipline, discipline. It still might go sideways, but it's okay. You know why and you know what to do. But you're at least having more successes yeah. that you're doing it. It's just taking so much effort. Yeah. But the more that you do that, the easier it gets, and pretty soon you find yourself unconsciously competent. And what's happened is this new way of being has become your autopilot. It's now who you are to communicate that way. And this whole process may take years to go through. Yeah. But it's really the only way. You have to go through those steps. And, and some people could be like my wife was born in a way with unconscious competency in, in like communicating. She just does it well. Do you think her parents did it well? Yeah, so she kind of yeah. learned it. it she, she was just better at it, and just like she'll just take it on. She'll well, if there's a problem, let's just talk. She just would do it naturally, but didn't know what she was doing. Yeah, she you know didn't what I mean? have a formula to uh -huh. it. She wasn't following a plan. She must have had great parents yeah. that just yeah. And I think some of it just it right. might be even her nature. But then there were times where she would be unconsciously incompetent, like. She'd know, she wouldn't know how good she is, but also times she wouldn't know when she just stepped on my toe. You know what I mean? About yeah. something emotionally. And then she, but when she did and I would you know, have a problem, she'd just naturally go start working on fixing it. I just, I'm amazed at her like, wow, how do you know that? Because yeah. I had to study it to get it. Me too. And, it's and I know amazing. there's a lot of people out there who are thinking I didn't have parents that knew how to communicate at all. Yeah. So I learned everything wrong and it can feel kind of overwhelming. Right, right. I mean, we're talking about changing those ingrained patterns. It's, it can be discouraging. But then eventually you, you – so you're, you're just saying though, you can – whatever level you are, start there, become aware, start to figure it out, think it through, learn the skills, get the help. Get some help. And then process, process, and eventually you can get to a point where it's just you. Yeah, You're competent. It's going to come. And we it's natural. It will. Uh -huh. it, it really is. And some of it is just overriding your natural fight or flight. Your natural fight or flight is such a big deal with your relationships or your change or your fears that drive the fight or flight. Well, and I, I find we're usually afraid of two things. We're either afraid of failure that we're going to try to change, but we won't yeah, be able to. And it would just be safer to stay where we are than mm -hmm. to try and fail. Right. So we, we kind of hold back or we're afraid of success. And this looks like I'm afraid that I will learn these things and then I'm going to have to be that mature and communicate on that high level the rest of my uh, life. And I don't know if I can live up uh, to that. I know. So it's safer to just stay dysfunctional. Isn't it funny? Because so, people think it's – I don't – oh, this takes forever. But it really doesn't. Once you're good at being effective and communicative and healthy, every, it goes faster. You don't have to hold a grudge for a week. Don't you think it kind of – it requires people though to trust us yeah. that you can change and that this works uh -huh. and you're going to get there? I'm, I always have people at the beginning that are just sure they're going to be our first failure. 
and it won't work yeah, for them. But totally. I, I promise yep. when you when you follow these steps and you get help from people that know what they're doing, anything can change. I'm sure oh, you've, yeah. oh, you've miracles. seen people mm-hmm. that you – have you had people you've thought, oh, oh I don't know. Maybe, all the time. Maybe like, they can't. Oh, here's the one. Here's the one that will never get it. Oh, they got it. Even if they just – because I just found – even if they get half of it. It makes a big difference. Yeah, they're twice as good. Yeah. So it's just – you don't need to get everything even. Just get what you can and a little bit helps. And you'd be surprised at how much easier changes than you think it's going to be if you follow this step. That was Kim Giles again from Clarity Point Coaching and uh, helping us all learn to change ourselves before we try to change everybody else in the world It's just such a simpler approach, isn't it? Well, let's continue it more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the the world. This is a show as vast as space and as timeless as a 60-minute segment will allow. It is programmed between the darkness of the Matt Townsend Show and the light of BYU Sports Nation. And it lies between the pit of Jeff Simpson's stomach and the summit of his appetite. It is a show which we call Screen Cleaning. Ooh. I I told you this was going to be a great show. I bet you're intrigued. I bet your interest is piqued. Today... Cole and I have got a great segment coming up in which we're going to share our horror anthology mixed tapes. It's probably something you've never, ever heard of, but I'm not going to tell you much more than that because you've got to tune in to find out what it's all about, but you're not going to want to miss it because we've got some great picks for uh, for shows that you can watch when you don't really have a ton of time. But first... We want to speak with our good friend Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. Parent Previews is all about helping parents make informed decisions on what to show their their families. And uh, we've always appreciated him here on Screen Cleaning and on the Matt Townsend, Townsend Show. Now, Rod, I did see Happy Death Day as well, and I know you did. And I, the, what I heard from you basically was that you couldn't necessarily recommend it for families – but that you kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, and these guys know how to make. And when I say these guys, it's from, uh, oh, now the name has escaped me. Help me, Jeff. Blumhouse. Um, Blumhouse? Yeah, it was a Blumhouse. Blumhouse. Thank Blumhouse. you. These guys know how to make a good movie on a budget. I mean, $5 million to make this film. And uh, it's got great timing. And it actually, even though it's a total ripoff of Groundhog Day, they're smart enough to admit that in the movie if you if you wait to the very end. Yeah. And uh, and it really I, I thought it worked quite well. I thought it came together quite well. And and actually is probably the most profitable movie on the screen in the last six months. You know, considering just how many of these time loop movies are coming out lately, I've mm-hmm. actually been surprised at the quality of some of them. You know, I I would always still place uh, Groundhog Day as my number one time loop movie. Number two, I would place the Tom Cruise uh, Edge of Tomorrow film. Yes. That I just enjoyed that so much. I felt I don't think I've ever been to a movie before where I felt like I was playing a video game. You know, mm-hmm. in a video game, you're you're inching your way toward the last bad guy, learning from your mistakes. You keep getting killed, and so you're having to start over again. And that's essentially all that Edge of Tomorrow was, and it was just a blast. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the time loop thing, um, you know, when we saw it in Groundhog Day, it was such a unique idea. But I think directors just can't resist now coming back to that. Hopefully we won't get too many of these. I don't know how long <laughs> they're going to be able to reinvent it. But it really it appeals to so many uh, emotions that we as humans have where you wish you could just keep doing it over until you get it right. You know, right. we only get one chance usually at most things. And, and so I think that's part of the fun of it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned one of the reasons why perhaps horror movies are still so prevalent today, because they can be made with a dime and the returns mm-hmm. are insane. But uh, I was hoping that you and I could share our our ideas for why we think horror movies are still so prevalent today. And, you know, mine are a little, I'll just say creative. But uh, my my first reason for why horror films are still so prevalent today is just – and aside from the fact that they make a lot of money and, you know – what else are you going to put out in October besides a horror movie? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There are just no new ideas. And so you get these same reboots hashed over again and again and again. That's why I, I have to tip my hat to um, Happy Death Day. It's not a new idea, but it is a new twist on an idea that was, you know, somewhat entertaining. So I just think that there are no new ideas and horror films – they see those as an easy cash grab. So why not just take those and rehash them and put them out again and again as long as people are willing to pay for them? I, yeah, I think you have a point there. Um, uh, you know, for guys like us who watch movies for a living, so to speak, after you've done this over three decades, the repetition becomes a bit much. But the the typical horror movie audience is a fairly narrow range. It usually runs from about 15 years old, often young people that shouldn't even be getting into those R-rated movies and moving up to about 25 or 30. It's a pretty narrow window. So basically every 10 years, you've you've got a new audience. But, uh, you know, I think what brings people back to them over and over, one of many things is that a good horror movie identifies And every day, it could be an object, it could be an experience that all of us have, it could be something as simple as, who knows, brushing your teeth and turning it into something really creepy. And I think that's something that people, those are the movies, at least the work for me, that bring people back to them. Yeah. I think there's a desire for us as moviegoers to laugh. And if you go to any scary movie, the first thing that people do, especially if they're in an audience with other moviegoers <laughs> surrounding them, the first thing people do after they get scared or after they fall for a jump scare is they start to laugh. Maybe they're laughing at themselves for being scared and getting caught, or maybe they just laugh to cut the tension that comes from being scared. But I, I think that we, we go see these films because we love to laugh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that laugh thing, okay, I'm going to get a little psychological on you, on you now, because having done parent previews for so many years, I've read tons of studies. One of the things that people get from watching horror is it allows them to develop a sense of control. So where they're in a what they know is a, an unreal situation, they're sitting in a theater, but it allows us to practice control. So laughing 
allows us to practice our control mechanism of becoming scared. And it, and it gives us a way to psychologically distance us from what we're seeing on the screen. And that's that's a payoff for us. Yeah. So we might as well just be saying, oh, this is just a movie. It's not real. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and I'm I'm going to suggest one other reason why horror movies are still so prevalent today. I think... And this is maybe a little darker than my other two reasons. I think there's something in us that wants to misbehave just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think I think for a lot of people, I feel this way sometimes depending on the movie. Maybe I'm I'm being a little bad by going and watching these films about people being killed one by one, you know? And I I think for some reason since we all spend so much of our time trying to be so good, there's a small part of us that maybe wants to rebel and wants to be a little bad, and maybe this is one of the outlets that we choose for that. What do you think Did about you know that? Did you know there was a study in 1995 uh, done about that, and they found that what you're describing was exclusive to the 220 adolescents that they that they studied, it was exclusive to the males. They were the only ones oh, really? that identified with that. Yes, yes, <laughs> which was really interesting. So I'm going to flip it over and I'll tell you why um, it, females will often come to horror movies. Um, they will often have uh, empathy for the victim. And, uh, and they receive a high, they tend to prefer Horror movies, I mean, and this is 90% of them, where the victim comes out, you know, the hero, and he or she makes it to the end of the movie, and they're holding the bloodied axe after they've killed the bad guy or whatever. And for women, there's the payoff there where they've overcome fear. And so that's what will bring them back to movies as opposed uh, back to these movies, as opposed to men who sometimes very darkly identify with the killer, which isn't a good thing always. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so but, don't don't worry, Jeff. We can get you in for some <laughs> little psychological counseling. You're on a good campus there. You can you can go find someone. Well, maybe Dr. Matt Townsend can help me. <laughs> That's it. Dr. Matt's the guy. <laughs> you know, and as long as as long as uh, these movies keep making money, there we're gonna still see these horror films being released year after year, month after month. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, going back to Happy Death Day, I heard the budget on that was five million dollars. And right now it's made over 42 million and which, you know, 42 million. You think, well, gee, that's not much. Blade Runner made 76 million, but Blade Runner cost 150 million dollars to make. And so when you've got a five million dollar movie that can return what's called over eight times profits, oh, you bet there's going to be more. Yeah, and another release from that same production company, Get Out, earlier mm-hmm. in the year. $4 million, I think, to make, and it made well over yeah. $100 million. So that pretty much uh, launched the career of its director, Jordan Peele, who's primarily known for comedy. Comedy. Interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And, and that's the – so the horror movie genre is far from being my favorite. But every now and then I will see one of these films. At the very least, I appreciate uh, the filmmaking skills. And sometimes I even appreciate the chills. There's a couple I've seen over the years that I think, yeah, okay, that was really good. 
Well, Rod, we really appreciate your insight on this topic, and uh, thank you for helping me identify that maybe I have a problem that needs to be taken care of. And uh, don't I'm, don't worry, Jeff. With a little time and patience, that can be overcome. Oh. <laughs> you just need to just watch My Little Pony a few more times. You'll be okay. Oh, well, according to my wife, I should not watch My Little Pony, but I guess that's a different (laughs) discussion for a different day. His name is Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. You can uh, look up his podcast, the Parent Previews podcast, as well as go to his website, parentpreviews.com, to help you make more informed decisions on what to show your families. When we return, Cole and I are going to be talking about horror anthology mixed tapes. Super excited when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. Imagine, if you will, hitching a ride with a stranger in complete darkness. Want to see something real scary? Sure. I love this. Okay? Yeah, what? We're driving along here, right? Yeah. What are those gravel beds up ahead? They're going to fly up and knock out our lights. Uh-oh. Blackness. Oh, my goodness. Why, there could be nuns ahead. We wouldn't even see them. An amusing hypothetical. But, of course, most people wouldn't take that ride. Especially if they knew it would drive them full speed into Twilight Zone, the movie. The characters in our story, or rather unwilling participants, struggle, some in vain, to escape a nightmare. And in the case of our first character, it's a nightmare of his own making. Meet Bill Connor, a most unhappy man who blames all his woes in life on people who in his eyes are inferior. But he quickly learns that justice is blind. Our next story proves that monsters come in all shapes and sizes. Case in point, Anthony Fremont, a six-year-old boy who always gets his way. He can read other people's minds, feel their emotions, and disappear anyone who contradicts him with the snap of his fingers. Our saga concludes with not-so-frequent flyer John Valentine, the man who cried wolf, or in this case, Goblin. But Mr. Valentine isn't lying about what he sees, or at least what he thinks he sees, tearing apart the wing of his airplane. Be sure to witness for yourself these terrifying tales, but you may want to sleep with the lights on, because in the dark, you may find one of many passageways that lead to the Twilight Zone, the movie. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. I've got Cole Wissinger here with me. We thought we would do something kind of different. I remember when I was growing up trying to watch my shows on TV when they aired, because that was kind of the option. Unless you wanted to tape them, we only had two TVs, and I was the youngest in the family. So I was pretty low on the totem pole as far as, uh, you know, who gets to watch the, the TV when. I can't relate. Yeah, you're the you know, only, only child, child. right? <laughs> but one thing I would do from time to time is I would take a VHS tape, put it in the VCR, some of you listening might not understand anything of what I'm saying right now. 
Um, they are listening to a radio right now. That is so true. bygone eras of media <laughs> transfer are not past. Them. Yeah. So you'd put the the video in the VCR, and you could program it to pre. You could uh, program it to record a program ahead of time. So you would pre-record a program. And if you really wanted that tape to have legs, to go the distance, you wanted to get as much use of that tape as possible, you could change the settings on the tape. So there was standard play, which meant you had two hours on the tape. There was extended or, uh, let's see, long play, which was LP, for four hours on the tape. And then extended play, you could record up to six hours of content on that video. And that's what I was always used to. And so right. imagine my horror when I was trying to tape a Steelers game one <gasps> Sunday so that I could watch it the next day. Yeah. Because um, we were busy at church. Uh, and I realized that it was possible to change those settings for the first time. And I got the first two hours oh, no. of it. Uh, and was absolutely bewildered why I didn't get the rest. Yeah. I figured out those settings pretty fast. Now, what I will say is, though, the more time you add on to that tape, it decreases the quality of the picture right. just a little bit, okay? So uh, Cole and I are going to do something really interesting today. We realize that not a lot of people have time to sit down and watch hours and hours and hours of movies, but maybe you have time to watch, like, little short films because there are so many out there to choose from. We wanted to make a mixed tape. So you might have a Steelers game and an episode of Friends on your tape. I that might have normal. an ep- like an old movie from Turner Classic Movies and an episode of The Simpsons on my tape. Okay? Right. So we're going to share with you our anthology horror film or TV show uh, mixed tapes. So here's what right. you would find on an anthology mixed videotape. Uh, from Cole and from me. And Cole, I'm going to let you start off with your first choice of what would be on your anthology horror film slash TV show mixtape. All right, Jeff. My first entry submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society is The Tale of Bigfoot Ridge from Are You Afraid of the Dark as my first entry. I don't think I've seen this one. So... Are You Afraid of the Dark had its original run for about three seasons, and then it came back in about 99, 2000-ish, and I was ready for this. Whenever it came (laughs) back, I watched every single episode as it happened. Yeah. Um, And this particular episode came out and starred an also Nickelodeon 90s alum, Brooke Nevin, from Animorphs. And Another show I'm not familiar it with. It also had Hayden Christensen, okay. who would later be in the Star Wars movies, but this was before that. Uh, and this is the tale of them going to the backside of a snowboarding mountain. It tells the story of two kids without fear, because they're extreme sports kids, um, that find out that fear can be in the dark. Ooh. It's fun. You know, when I was saying that I would try to uh, go watch a show and I would be the lowest on the totem pole Saturday night, I remember going to trying to go to a friend's house anywhere where I could tune in at 9.30 or whenever it was to watch an episode of the original series of Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was one of my favorite shows. It's Likewise. sadly not on my tape. Um, well, I do see, have some favorites, as, though. As the little bit younger of the two millennials of us, I figured yeah. that I wanted to get the, uh, okay. the well, kids' thank, entry I'm, in there. I'm so glad that you brought it up because it deserves to be on the tape, I for think. sure. 
Uh, so my first pick, and I'm going from the shortest to the longest. My first pick is from The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror number four, which was season five, episode five. And this is going to make sense here in a minute why I chose this particular segment. It is called simply The School Bus. And it's basically a spoof of terror at 20,000 feet from the Twilight Zone. Right. Where Bart is on a school bus and he is convinced that he sees this little gremlin on the side of the bus tearing it apart piece by piece. Of course, nobody believes him. And uh, my favorite, this has one of the best Simpsons lines ever. So for some reason, the principal of the school is on the school bus, Principal Skinner, and he hears that some kid is talking about how there's a monster on the side of the bus. And he comes up and says, now I've gotten word that a child is using his imagination and I've come to put a stop to it. (laughs) That is hilarious. So check it out. It's only seven minutes long. So funny. Simpsons Treehouse of Horror 4. That's my first pick. All right. I'll get to my two short ones as well. There was okay. a television show, again, that I <laughs> that I watched quite a bit of. Uh, I watched it when it came to the sci-fi channel that was called Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Interesting. Starring okay. Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek fame. <laughs> Aww. So Jonathan Frakes hosted this show and would kind of give you a preamble to the two to the uh, series of stories that they would tell during the course of the half hour episode. Um, and at the twist that this one brought to the table was that at the end of the episode, he would ask you, all right, which ones were fact and which Ooh. ones were fiction? And you got to guess after hearing the dramatized stories, which ones you thought were true. So I bring to the table one fact and one fiction story. Okay. Uh, the first was called... The Mirror of Truth, which tells the story of a very vain woman that goes in to get a makeup done. Uh, She thinks that she kind of botched the makeup. She gets up. She's very angry. She's just kind of a a seedy lady in in general, just not not very nice. And the the makeup person curses her. Um, Interesting. And the the stunning part of this episode was whenever she calls in a cosmetologist or a and a plastic surgeon, all kinds of people, um, and they look at her and they don't see anything wrong with her. But when she looks in the mirror of truth, okay, it's very picture of Dorian Grayish. Like she sees all the the evils that are inside of her heart yeah. manifest on her face, and the makeup is just it's. It's shocking when you okay. first see her in that mirror. All right. So that's the first one. Okay. And is I it get fact to guess, or is it right? fiction? Yeah. And then the other one was actually called The Caller, where you have a radio station. Uh, oh. The radio guy is kind of also not a savory individual. He's pretty mean to all of his callers. Uh, but one night, lightning strikes the radio tower, and then he gets a caller that he can't hang up on. Oh. And it's the voice of his, we soon find out, passed away young son that he never visited and that that he was neglectful towards and that young son haunts this radio dj to madness wow this sounds like a a fun show oh it was (laughs) um i'm gonna say that the first one was the true story and the second one was the fiction Correct, Jeffrey. Yes! And that's the game we got to play with five stories per episode. That's cool. It's, just, it's a great show. And what where what channel did this air on or what station was Originally, it? Originally, I think it was CBS or one of their kind of things. Okay. Uh, but it got around to sci-fi by the early 2000s, and that's where that I was out. watching it. Okay. So my number two uh, is 
It's interesting because there are several versions of this segment. This one is from Twilight Zone, the movie. Okay. And it is the segment Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. So again, and this is a remake of the one that aired on the Twilight Zone, the TV show, which was based on a short story by Richard Matheson, who is my one of my favorite authors, my favorite horror author of all time. So this one, same premise, except he's on a plane. He thinks he sees a monster. Nobody else can see it, so nobody believes him. Played geniusly by John Lithgow and directed by George Miller, who did all the Mad Max films and he did Babe 2, I believe, is the one that he directed. That's the next one you go to from yeah, George it doesn't Film, make any Miller's sense. filmography. So he's really good at like this really crazy, chaotic style. And, of course, John Lithgow is a terrific actor, really brings a lot of madness to the role. And uh, just such a scary film. Stylistically, it's wonderful. And uh, the film, the Twilight Zone movie itself, is bookended by this kind of a cold opening and then a, I guess you would call it a warm opening. I don't know what you'd call the end, or epilogue, um, with Dan Aykroyd, who all I'm going to say is he says the line, do you want to see something really scary? And that wraps up John Lithgow's story, and it's it's the best part of the movie, in my opinion. So Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring John Lithgow, 22 minutes long. There you go. And I'll let you go again because I went – I did two okay. in there. All right. This one is one that I had never heard of and a fact that I was unaware of. So when I say Black Sabbath, what do you think of? Music. Exactly, right? Or the <gasps> movie starring a couple Pittsburgh Steelers, I think. Were they the ones that were in – they were – oh, no. They had a movie called Black Sunday. Okay. That had a couple athletes starring right. in the movie. So obviously when I say Black Sabbath, you're probably going to think of the of the rock group Black Sabbath. Well, they actually got their name from this horror anthology movie called Black Sabbath. And there are three stories in this uh, bookended by – so it's got a, a prologue and an epilogue by the wonderful Boris Karloff. But the film is in Spanish – or Italian, I should say, and so you've got to you've got to be able you've got to be willing to read the subtitles. the The best of the three stories comes uh, again at the end, just like with the Twilight Zone movie, and it's called the Drop of Water, and it involves this woman who uh, is called in. I believe she's some sort of a nurse. She's called in to uh, attend to this dead body to kind of dress it a little bit to prepare it, get it ready for burial. And the this this dead body is just really twisted and scary looking. I could see this especially creeping out kids. But to me I was I was kind of creeped out too. So as she's preparing her body, she notices this ring on her finger, on the cadaver's finger, and her temptation she gives way to her temptation and she steals the ring from this dead body. She does that. She goes home. And all of a sudden, she starts hearing this constant drop of water. And, you know, she'll go and she'll dry up that faucet. And then she'll hear it from somewhere else. And then also she starts hearing this really annoying fly. This movie is all about atmosphere, color. It looks beautiful. And the 
the the uh, the cadaver that they have in this film is just so creepy. And the lesson you learn from this film is don't steal things from dead people. Don't do it. It has dire consequences. That's all I'm going to say. But it's called The Drop of Water from the film Black Sabbath, and it's 22 minutes long. All right. Um, so stealing things from dead people, that can work into my next thing. Okay. So I, I really, really wanted to mention the modern um, paragon of horror anthology, and that is American Horror Story. Okay. Now, on this two-hour VHS tape, I'm not going to be able to fit an entire season, but the way they do things is that each 13-episode or so season is a new story based somewhere in horror. Which right? is why it can be considered an anthology. Right. right. And the cool thing that they do with it is that they bring back the same cast members year yeah. in and year out, just playing different people in a different or maybe connected world. Okay. My favorite still is, though, the first season of American Horror Story, where we're introduced to a young family coming in, moving into a, a giant, scary-looking house that turns out to be haunted. Um, anyone in the house's history that is murdered on the grounds stays there to haunt the premise. And so they get to meet through the course of the season all these different folks that have lived in the house for years and years before um, that are coming back to either teach our heroes a lesson or try to enact revenge or try to help them, all sorts of people. Um, but the first episode is what I put on the tape to get you started and hooked. Oh, wow. Then you can go look up the rest. So the moral of that story is don't get murdered at this house, I guess. Correct. <laughs> Okay, I will admit I haven't seen any of these that you've suggested so far. I'm giving you something to look up. Uh, so my next pick kind of uh, follows a similar theme, not a similar theme, but similar format as yours. It was a TV movie made in the 70s, and it was an anthology movie. So there were three stories, three different stories, but the main character was played by the same actress, a Miss Karen Black. And the name of this film is Trilogy of Terror. And again, all three of these were written by Richard Matheson, the, ge- the, the king of horror, in my opinion. I know a lot of people would say Stephen King or somebody else, but Richard Matheson is really the best. And again, it comes in the last story is the best one. And it's called Amelia, based on a short story uh, called Prey, P-R-E-Y. By Richard Matheson, and it involves this woman who uh, gets this doll that she's going to get give away as a gift. It's like this tribunal African doll that just looks kind of hideous. It has these sharp teeth, and he has this little spear. Just this little guy, a little tiki doll from the Brady Bunch movie. Right, right. (laughs) And somehow this little doll comes to life over the course of her evening. And terrorizes her. And so she's just trying to stay alive for the the 24 minutes that this thing lasts. And it has some things going against it. You know, you would think, oh, that I bet the graphics are really outdated and it's a TV movie, so maybe the quality is not that great. This is one that people frequently reference, uh, Trilogy of Terror, Amelia, because it is still terrifying to this day, I think. It's just... it. 
Ooh. And it has just such a terrifying image to end the episode. I would suggest Trilogy of Terror. It was a TV made-for-TV movie, so it's somewhat appropriate. I don't remember there being a lot of blood or gore or anything like that. But uh, check it out. 24 minutes long. There you go. And so American Horror Story, the first episode's about 45 minutes, so I took up a chunk of time. I'll yes. let you get one more in before I okay. give you my final one. Okay. So uh, this one, again, I'm kind of coming full circle with these because we've talked about the Twilight Zone. And uh, one thing I didn't mention about the Simpsons Treehouse Horror, uh, Treehouse of Horror, season four, the uh, the school bus is one of three paintings that is referenced in the episode. So it's Bart in a suit presenting each painting that then from the painting you get the episode. That concept is based on the Night Gallery, the series that Rod Serling did after the Twilight Zone. So you've got Rod Serling doing his normal uh, pre-episode presenting, you know, his prologue, dressed up. He's in this gallery unveiling these paintings and these paintings show some sort of an image that they use to introduce each segment. This segment is the very first episode of the pilot, which was a TV movie, and the TV movie was so successful that they they, they then went on to make a series. It's called The Cemetery, Ooh. and it stars Roddy McDowell, who you will know from the Planet, Planet of the Apes, of the Apes films. Yeah. In this film, he is a dead ringer for Jim Carrey. Just think of like Jim Carrey in a an Andy Kaufman, Tony Clifton wig, and you've got Roddy McDowell. His features look exactly – you could see Jim Carrey doing this role. And he really chews up the scenery in this. He's He's got this southern, southern accent, and it takes place – in this uh, this mansion of a home, he's this really rotten nephew that is trying to weasel his way into this home because his uncle is going to pass away soon. He's terminally ill, and he can't be open. He can't be near an open window because then he'll get pneumonia, and his chances of dying will increase significantly. So I wonder what our hero is going to do. Yeah, he. Let's just say he parks him next to a scenic part of the house. <laughs> and his uncle dies. He inherits all this money in this house. Well, in his uncle's home, there are various paintings, again, tying along with the theme of the night gallery. And in one of the paintings, there is a painting of the mansion house, as well as the family cemetery plot. The uncle has painted this portrait. As he passes the painting one day after his uncle's passed away, he notices there's something a little different about the painting. Ooh. There's a freshly dug grave, presumably for where his uncle is going to be buried, right? Throughout the episode, he starts noticing little differences in the painting, and he starts to go mad. And I won't say what happens, but let's just say it's an episode that has a double twist. Double oh twists are always fun because you think, oh, they twisted it, and then you get another twist. So it's two twists for the price of one. Check it out. It's The reason I put this toward the end of my list is the length, 33 minutes. And also, 
it's it's difficult to find. You have to uh, you can stream the Night Gallery on Hulu, but they do not stream the pilot episode of the Night Gallery. Oh man! So you have to check it out from your library, or you have to buy the first full season on uh, uh, Amazon or eBay because it only comes in the first full season DVD set. Gotcha. And it's not available to stream anywhere else but Hulu. But the pilot episode is not available. So the I cemetery. can find it all those places or. On your mixtape. <laughs> That's right. You can find it on my mixtape. All right. Okay. I've saved my best for last. And Ooh. when you first told me that we were going to be talking about horror anthologies and what my favorite favorites were, my real questions were that I heard coming out of your mouth were, what's your favorite Twilight Zone episode and why is it Taki Tina? Okay. Because Ooh, that is far and away just the seminal episode of the greatest series of horror anthologies. My name is Taki Tina. And I'm going to kill you. It does not <laughs> get creepier than that episode, but that was too easy. And I knew I could talk about it anyway, so I brought a different episode of The Twilight Zone. Okay. Maybe one that people that have seen less than two episodes might not have heard of. Kind okay. Of right, because I think Taki Tina is the one that people are going to recognize. But go back and watch all of it, because in there, you're also going to find five characters in search of an exit. Oh, yes. I know this one. Which is my personal favorite, where you have these these five very, very unique characters, a major in the army, a dancer, a clown, a Scotsman with bagpipes, and a tramp that all wake up one day in this cylindrical cage, this metal, just eerily blank-looking prison for all intents and purposes without any memory of where they came from or or what they're going to do or why they're there. Um, And they start hypothesizing why they're there and, and what this means and what their existence is and how to get out. And so eventually they figure out how to climb to the top and then we, the viewers, find out just what they were the whole time. That is a good one. It's it's different. Uh, and I, when I was going through this, I I almost put an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone on here, but there just wasn't enough time. Uh, do you have an honorable mention that you'd like to mention? Um, every single other episode of The Twilight Zone. There I, you go. I think that it doesn't. Yeah. Um, the very first episode where the guy finds out that he's all alone in the world, um, they play with that again in a, an episode that we've talked about where a guy finds out he's all alone and yes. he finally has time to read, but he breaks uh, his glasses and yes. he can't. Uh, there's The Twilight Zone is the place to go. If this is your kind of genre, as it was mine growing up, um, the New Year's Day marathon of The Twilight Zone is oh, yeah. where you can just set the VCR to record. And sit back and relax. Luckily, you don't have to choose because you can stream all of those on Netflix, Netflix. and Hulu as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mine is not my favorite by any means. I loved the premise, though. And if you're doing them, if you've done the math on my mixed tape, you'll know that I only have about 12 minutes left. And for that reason, I'm going to submit for your approval not an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, but a segment from a show called Dimension 404 which is a new show on Hulu. I've only seen this one episode, and it's called Matchmaker. The reason I only put 12 minutes on here, uh, or I'm allowing my tape to run out on this episode, is because once you get to what's really going on, the magic of the episode kind of wears off, and it doesn't really stick the ending as much as I would hope. But it's Matchmaker, and the episode starts out 
with this guy that's in this coffee shop with this girl. You could tell they're on a first date. It's going. It's very awkward. He seems very nice. She seems not interested at all. In fact, she's just staring at her iPad. Seems like she's elsewhere. And they end the date, and he's like, uh, this isn't going well, is it? She's like, no, in fact, you can leave. Goodbye. So just Aww. really weird first date. And this guy's depressed. He goes to his roommate. He's like, I'm never going to find somebody. And his friend, his uh, roommate convinces him to go online to this site called Matchmaker, where they will match you. They'll You can plug in all your likes and dislikes, and they'll match you with somebody that's 100% your match. So he's matched with this woman that he goes on a date with. They, they really hit things off. And, uh, you know, two months later, he's thinking, I want to want to ask her to marry me. And his roommate's like, ah, you might want to take it slow. I don't know if that's such a good idea. Well, he uh, proposes to this girl, and she does not take it well. In fact, she gets increasingly more flustered and annoyed with this guy to the point where she picks up her phone and she's like, oh, give me a break. And she puts a big X on her phone. And all of a sudden these guys swoop into the room and they take oh, no. this guy. And so you're wondering, what's going on here? Well, it turns out that this guy is a clone that this female has ordered that is a part of this matchmaker program. Whoa. If it doesn't work out, they have a returns program. And so he's being sent back as part of the returns program. And that's really the best part of the episode. So if you can only watch those first 12 minutes, that's good. My honorable mention, and I'll mention this because uh, they're reviving this show. It's a show called Amazing Stories, produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, And my favorite episode of Amazing Stories was Go to the Head of the Class. It's 45 minutes long. You can't find it unless you buy the DVD on Amazon or eBay. So not as accessible. So that's my honorable mention. If I could fit in a couple more honorable mentions also that are too long, there's a new show called Lore on Amazon Prime that's based on a podcast. Mm -hmm. I watched a couple episodes. They're pretty long. You could just go listen to the podcast. Sure. And and podcasts don't lend lend themselves to VHS tapes. Yeah. Um, Or also Black Mirror episodes are far too long to be able to fit on just Mm, a two-hour. I haven't seen that one. Um, But those are other entries, more modern entries into the horror anthology genre. Well, Cole, thank you so much. Thanks for helping our listeners come up with ideas for what they can watch when they don't have a ton of time, but maybe they could watch something that's 20 minutes long to get their spooks and chills in. There you have it. Those are our anthology horror film slash TV show mixed tapes submitted for your approval. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Does that music sound familiar? If not, then you're lying. That, of course, is from 1975's Jaws. Jaws follows the wacky adventures of a mischievous giant man-eating shark who stops by a New England summer resort town for a bite to eat. Alright, I may have sugarcoated the description a bit, but in actuality, this film is terrifying. As a kid, I only watched this movie during the day because if I watched it at night, it would give me nightmares. Oh, incidentally, nightmare is the perfect word to describe this film's production. However, budget and shark malfunction problems aside, Steven Spielberg's Jaws was a huge hit. Uh, 
the film, not the jaws at the entrance of Spielberg's mouth. That would be awkward. And also grammatically incorrect. Anyway, the film also garnered four Academy Award nominations, winning three. And contains one of the best, and also improvised, lines in cinema history. You're going to need a bigger boat. The effectiveness of this horror film doesn't come from jump scares. Although there is one jump scare in the movie that is quite effective. Let's just say you probably won't ever want to go scuba diving at night again. Like any good scary movie, the chills come from well-written monologues that are well-acted and require us to use our imagination. Like this one from Robert Shaw's hardened shark hunter, Quint, describing a shark attack he witnessed after the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. Of course, highest praise, arguably, should go to John Williams' Oscar-winning score. Now, the film, unfortunately, was followed by three sequels. Brownie points for number two for coming up with one of the most effective ad campaigns. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, the legend continues. Oh, and it was also made into a Nintendo game. Oh, and here's an idea. Why not watch it outside while floating in your pool, eating a hamburger, or some other kind of jump? Go ahead. I dare you. There's good in them dire hills. For those of you who simply cannot forgive me for putting anything Twilight Zone related on my mixed tape of horror anthologies, then uh, you'll forgive me now because I want to tell you about something that is quite unique and quite entertaining called the Twilight Zone radio dramas. This is something where they took all the episodes, if not all, most of the episodes of the Twilight Zone, and they dramatized them for radio. And Stacy Keach, the actor, is the takes the place of Rod Serling, so he introduces all of these episodes, and he even acts in one or two of them. They've rounded up all these various celebrities to uh, to partake in this fun series. That really, it's just it's just a feast for the senses. To if you're not in a place where you can watch an episode of The Twilight Zone, but you're in your car on a road trip, even on your way to work. It's just a great thing to listen to, and you can actually buy them per episode. I think it's like a dollar per episode on a Twilight Zone radio app. So go check it out, and go check out some of these picks on our anthology horror mixed tapes. That's going to do it for screen cleaning today, and uh, enjoy all the various sporting events and different shows that you can watch on Netflix this weekend. We'll be back next week.